you know, they put themselves on the line a bit and it's this combination of art and danger and and it's all bit and once I started realising there was that kind of like role in the world, I was like, okay, I guess I really liked it for one thing. Like I really liked I really like that sort of outsider artist kind of thing. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. John Safran is a comedian, documentary writer and author. Since rising to fame through Race Around the World, he's made several hit television shows, including John Safran vs. God and Race Relations. Along with Father Bob Maguire, he hosted Sunday Night Safran on Triple J. John has written three books, Murder in Mississippi, published in America as God'll Cut You Down, Depends What You Mean by Extremist, and Puff Peace, which just hit the shelves. Like me, John was born in August 1972, but most annoyingly, he's 10 days younger than me. John, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Yes, that's why I look so youthful compared to you. It's uh, and it also um, I stayed in indoors when I was in primary school the whole time instead of going outside reading mad magazines in my bedroom. So that's also helped in the long term with my uh, skincare regime. Well, I did want to ask you about your uh, your childhood because um, you know, I grew up in Sydney, you grew up in Melbourne, and and when I was thinking back through what were the kind of big comedy influences on my generation, they were uh, the British comedians, Monty Python, Yes Minister, Young Ones, and then in Australia it was really that whole big gig set, uh, you know, Wendy Harmer, Doug Anthony, All Stars, and the like. Uh, what what were your comedy influences? Uh, so the local ones were me and my friends at Yeshiva College. We were obsessed with the D-Generation that were on morning radio. Mm. Uh, and they used to have live outside broadcasts and we'd wag school and uh, go to them. And uh, for instance, like we turned up to the Swagman restaurant one morning well, I, kind of, I don't even know where that is now, but far, far away. I think we got one of the parents to drive us there. And other time they did a live outside broadcast on a tram and, you know, I just travelled the whole way on the tram. So, and then years later I met them and they remembered us because we had our little Jewish skull caps on when we were um, stalking them. So, yeah, that, 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 that was fun. And me and my friends really liked them. And maybe the first comedy like grown-up comedy was when I was in Cubs and Scouts so these two kids who on the hikes they'd uh, sing all the Monty Python songs in front of me I didn't know who Monty Python were and I kind of enjoyed that so they were like my real-life Walkman and then later when I bought the cassettes from Brashes myself and listened to Monty Python I realized I'd sped things up a bit and kind of cut out a bit of the fat and actually you know their their cover versions were you know they weren't worse, so so that was good. There was a bit of comedy there. I guess, I guess like a lot of young kids, because I see that in kids today, is kids love breaking the fourth wall stuff. You know, they love things where you're like you're reading a book, but then like the book talks to you and talks about, hey, turn the page now or something like that. So I was like, I was obsessed when I was really young 
with those Warner Brothers cartoons that where, you know, Daffy Duck would start talking to the animator and the animator's trying to get revenge on him and drawing him like an idiot in the cartoon. I, I love it. Like that breaking the fourth wall stuff just, I don't know, it was like, it was better than Red Cordial in sending me spinning around the lounge room. Yes, in private eye, sort of enjoyed doing doing that in a uh, in a written sense as well. Um, I, I was going to ask you one of the things I really like about your journalism is that it doesn't do disgust. Um, and as somebody who's trained as an economist, one of the things people often say about economists is we're not really prone to being disgusted by things. We tend to just explore the, the spectrum of humanity with with very little judgment. Um, where did that come from in your your upbringing? Is that from sort of a sense of being a bit of an outsider at Yeshiva College, or uh, you? Yeah, where... I, I guess. Well, this is where like things come crashing in on the the whole thing of I, I enjoy being a storyteller. And not that, not that when I started off, I ever I looked at it that way. You know, you, you just sort of, when you start off, you're just writing or you're just filming TV. You're not really thinking about it that hard. But I, I, as I've got older and look back on things and my instincts or whatever, there's a thing about storytelling is that's different to say journalism and definitely tabloid journalism is, uh, or, or even activism or even op-eds. So, that, so with, with journalism, op-eds, and activism, it's like, you say what you mean, you say it hard, and you say what you mean 10 times. And, you know, mm. if you want to put, well, whilst with storytelling, uh, whether that's fiction, filmmaking, so things, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like, you leave, it's, you leave things unsaid. And that's part of getting the energy of the, the story running along. It's like that thing about jazz, how it's like, it's the notes you don't play that makes it really good or whatever. So storytelling is kind of in this clash a bit with conventional uh, 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 journalism or, or activism or whatever, because you're trying to do a dance with the audience where you're kind of toying with them a bit because that's fun. You're being a bit cheeky to your audience a bit, and part of that is being ambiguous and letting them read between the lines and saying things where they have to fill in the gap and... And an audience finds that stimulating or whatever. But so I, I think a part of that of me not being really judgy is that it just doesn't work for me. Like it doesn't. It just doesn't work for me as a storyteller in the character I play within my own stories. So it's, for instance, people want me to be funny, and it's just not funny for me to be whining, even at a a cigarette company or a white supremacist. It's just not. It just doesn't work creatively and so working backwards from that uh that would definitely be a reason i, I come across as less judgy but th then also i'm just i'm very curious about certain things so i, I want to hear what they have to say and then also the storyteller in me kind of knows that they're going to say something that's going to be more interesting than me interrupting them oh but god knows i screw that up and interrupt people all the time and always regret it in fact in puff piece i talk about how i screw up getting a good answer from someone because uh, he leaves an uncomfortable silence and I kind of fill in the gap with my own story and then I'm listening back later to my audio recording and I realise I never let him get back to answer the question and I'm like stewing and kicking myself in the book, breaking the fourth wall there. 
There's a uh, theory of creativity that a lot of it has to do with uh, with obstacles. Uh, you know, the yeah. lovely story of Keith Jarrett's Colin concert where uh, the piano's uh, got all kinds of problems with it, but he plays anyway and produces <laughs> an amazing piece. Uh, yeah. And you've you've talked about the teacher who once told you that uh, when someone bumps your arm when you're drawing a tree, you just make it into a tree branch. Uh, to, to, to what extent of, of const- your constraints kind of fueled your creativity, uh, even going back to the low tech of uh, race around the world? Oh, totally. The, uh, I, yeah, be, and yeah, so I wasn't even getting away with whining in like grade three or whenever it was, or grade one, when I, that like, I whined to the teacher that, yeah, that someone had bumped me and I, yeah, exactly how you told the story that, and I whined to her and she said, I'll just make it into a brand. So that maybe that was the, my first lesson in, I, no one's interested in my whining, but Totally, like, and a hundred percent, like, uh, this book is runs along. So much of it is the obstacles put in the way, and then you just lean into the obstacles. I, I'm really at such a benefit that so many other people wouldn't be that obstacles just means write about the obstacle, and then that's kind of fun to write about. And then by this stage of my career, I'm already zen about it. Like when I did my first book, uh, Murder in Mississippi, I was so stressed out by the obstacles. And so much was at stake with that first book because, you know, a book is whatever, 80,000, 90,000, 100,000. You can't do that on the last night. You can't wing that. And, and, uh, and so I was so stressed out by the obstacles when I, that was when a true crime, when I went to Mississippi and I was trying to get to talk to this killer who killed this white supremacist and he wouldn't. Uh, I, I kept on making these phone calls to the prison and I was just I was just recording the calls. I almost didn't record the calls because I thought, oh, the calls aren't really the book. What's going to happen? I'm going to eventually organise to meet up with him in the prison and then that's when the book will start and that's when my relationship will start. But I, but I just, thank God, I recorded all these calls and where I thought it was such an obstacle because it was like I just could not organise getting into the prison with him. And he was like manipulating me for money and everything like that. And he kept on saying, yes, yes, tomorrow, tomorrow. And, in, and he kept on telling me, oh, I'll tell you the story tomorrow, tomorrow. And, and it was just driving me crazy, this huge obstacle. And I was getting a knot in my back. But then when I was back home, I'm listening back to the audio recordings. I'm like, oh my God, this is so much of the book because it brings out his character. He's a hustler. He's manipulating me, and that's kind of interesting. So I've really like demonstrated his character in this uh, through this obstacle, and then I'm demonstrating my character through this obstacle too. Because me not thinking I'm going to be using any of this material in the book, I'm like happy to kind of pay him off a bit and try to sort of cross that ethical line of like, could I really be kind of like sending him money and stuff like that? So it was like it brought out natural. This obstacle brought out naturally uh, both of our characters in such a cool way that. So anyway, so I was very stressed out there by the obstacles. But then by this book, I just, I'm pretty zen now about the obstacles because I realise that's what's going to make the book. So yeah, in, the, in this book, uh, one of the first ones was that I contacted Philip Morris' cigarette company and said, oh, I want to write, write about you and your new smoke-free future, as you call it. And they're like, oh, John, we'd love to, we'd love to, we'd love to show you around, da-da-da-da-da, oh, I'd love to, or whatever. So then I go to Penguin Random House, and I pitch this book about Philip Morris and their 
brand new supposed smoke-free future where they're supposedly shutting down as a cigarette company and all this stuff. And Phil and Penguin are like, yeah, cool, or whatever. And then, so now I've got a book deal. Now I've got a book to write about uh, Penguin. Then I contact Philip Morris again because they haven't contacted me to kind of work out the nuts and bolts and when I could go in there. And they're like, oh, yeah, actually, no, we're not going to be able to do this. <laughs> so sorry, John. So I've gone off and got the book deal for the book on Philip Morris, and now Philip Morris on the pretense, on the premise that Philip Morris said I, they showed me behind the curtains, and now they're saying no. So then that became like this obstacle that was like annoying for a little bit, but kind of in the back of my mind by this time, I'm like, kind of like it. <laughs> I like the obstacle because the obstacles are what sort of helps me. Yeah, writing about the obstacles a lot is a lot better than. Um, trying to figure out what to write about. There's an awful lot in uh, Puff Piece, which is about your journey. I remember you saying in an interview a couple of years ago that you felt your first two books were basically written with uh, the critic over the over your shoulder and you wanted to write a book which was for your fans. Uh, did you feel as though that was the, uh, the, the, the production process this time around? Oh, yeah. God, it's, no, but it's much more screwed in the head than that. If I was writing for the critics, at least that would make some semblance of a sense and not, not make me seem like a lunatic. Oh, he's writing for the New York Times critics or The Age or something like that. No, no, I was writing for, like, personal enemies of mine who I knew would read the book, hate read the book, wanting me to fail. So that's what I was writing for. And it's like, that's such a... <laughs> writing for your worst pro- critic. Yeah, that, that's, like, such the worst way to write it. A little... I still have a little bit of that in here, but not not too much. This um, this book was a lot. I, I enjoyed writing this book a lot more because I oh, that's not true. I, I enjoyed writing this in a different way because I didn't know much about the topic. It's definitely not about science before I, you know, write, wrote started writing it. So I had to learn all this stuff for the first time, and so. Because I learned it, it was, I got to process it in a, a lot slower way and they could, therefore could kind of write it in a slower way, which I think is beneficial because I, I think when, you, when you're a writer, you can assume everyone's on the same page as you and has the same sort of backstory as you and understands things the same way. And that's not true. So it's, it's really good to kind of slow down and, and kind of slowly explain where you're coming from and slowly explain things. And, and that's a lot easier when you... We, you really don't have any idea what you're writing about until you've started writing it. So the, the other thing I, th- I liked about this book, I think, is that in the past, all my books have been about what they've been about. Actually, let me go back one step. Um, there's this uh, UK writer called John Ronson, who's sort of in the same genre as, as me, and he's done documentaries too. But I've always been a bit jealous because, or envious at least, because he knows how to do a theme and then a meaningful theme and then come up with a killer story that addresses that theme. So, for instance, he did this kind of radio documentary about the gig economy and about how, you know, this new gig economy, about how it sort of just has upended and sent ripples through all these industries and really affected uh, workers and everything. And, and the way he told the story was through uh, online pornography that, you know, 10 years ago or whenever it was, or before, you know, the super fast internet, it's like people would have to go down to the 7-Eleven and buy a Playboy and a plastic wrapper there and 
you know, or go to the video shop and hire some uh, a film there or whatever. So that just meant there were comp- these big companies and these filmmakers and actors and producers and distributors. There was all this... See, there's a whole world and it was like a huge industry. You know, I don't know how much it is, but you know, like billions of dollars and stuff. And then suddenly, uh, because of the online uh, and everything's free online, suddenly that just pulled the rug out from everything. And and suddenly, you know, actors can't get paid as much and they're thrown, you know, they can't ask for as much and the, everyone has to work their way around this brand new world and... People are being exploit, not exploited in different ways or new ways and stuff like that. So he told this. Um, I, I think if there was like another writer, they would have just, they just would have been, oh my god, the stories about pornography are so interesting. Let's 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 talk about that, and it'll be really interesting because we're talking to people who are, um, you know, star in these films and produce these films and blah blah blah, and, and, and it'd just be all about that. And but he did it. He decided not to make it about pornography. He made it about the gig economy and, you know, modern capitalism and then used this killer, colourful, vibrant, you know, dangerous, uncomfortable story to tell that theme. And so I've, I've always been jealous of him that he he uses the story to be the best killer example of a theme that's actually different from the story. So, for instance, he could tell that... He could have addressed that theme... And probably in a good way through something else as well. Um, so in, in, in my previous books, I've always just had this story where the story is the story. So it's like murder in Mississippi is about a murder in Mississippi. And there's idiosyncratic subtext to it. You know, like I, I, I put my own take in it in the subtext and in how I tell it. Or it even depends what you mean by extremist was largely about extremist and then sort of had this, all oh, my kooky fun, original observation, subtext or whatever, whilst in Puff Piece, when I started writing it, I realised I had a, a really, I had a proper theme, which is the power of language and, the, and the, the power of manipulating the world and manipulating people merely by substituting in new words. And this, what Philip Morris were doing with their new project was like this really killer example of it, where... Uh, like the, the most clear first example of it is that Philip Morris are banned uh, from selling menthol cigarettes across Europe. Uh, that happened last year, right? And so they go, okay, cool. We'll stop selling menthol cigarettes. Then they say, oh, we've got this new product and it's called a heat stick. And what a heat stick is, is tobacco rolled in paper with a filter at one end that you plant between your lips, inhaling in nicotine and tobacco. So, and it just looks like a cigarette with it chopped off the end. And then they get away with it. They've just changed the word cigarette to heat stick. And, and they manage to sort of fool everyone. And, and, and at least, and, and, and definitely can uh, get around, you know, the legislation banning menthol cigarettes. So it was like, uh, and then I just saw how all their, all of their sort of little, uh, games were built around or at least a lot of them were built around this whole thing of just changing the language and bending the language and once you bend the language you kind of change the world and uh so then yeah so for this book i was like oh cool i finally done doing what john ronson is where i've got a theme where it's about the power of changing language the power of substituting in new words for things 
and I've and I've got this killer example. So that's why I think this book's uh, a bit different to my last two. It's certainly different, and it's it's so different from the way in which I would have uh, gone about writing a, a book like this. I think I would have uh, sort of gone out there, interviewed uh, uh, Alex Wodak and Simon Chapman, and kind of work out where what common ground there was, and who, which which of them I believed. Read some of the evidence, brought that together. Uh, but yours is very much a kind of journey. Uh, about the book, and, and indeed, there's uh, it, uh, about halfway through the 368 pages, uh, you make a, a throwaway line that maybe we'll get to the answer because we've got a lot of the book still to go. Uh, and it, it reminded me of um, Andy Griffith and Tenny, Terry Denton's 13-story um, uh, treehouse series, which uh, starts off with, a, with about uh, building an amazing treehouse. And, and by the time they're up to writing their 130-story treehouse book, uh, the, the book is about two guys sitting down to write a book and having to turn pages into a publisher and uh, what a chore it is to have to, uh, have to turn out pages, but don't worry, we'll manage to meet our publishing contract. Um, did is there a sense in which you think you might have gone a bit overboard in the kind of uh, <laughs> discussion about the journey rather than the topic? Uh, no, I don't think so. Not not if the book's about the change, the the nature of words or whatever. But you know, I've got a I've got a copper sweet on the chin. <laughs> it comes across like that. There was there was a practical level of having to write about the book, which was this, especially because of COVID. Is that when I in my work, it, it doesn't work when I'm absent, even for a, even for a chapter. So, for instance, and I, and, I, and I did it a few times in this book, and I, I I've done it a few times in other books and just got away with it or whatever. But for instance, if I decide I've met someone and it's just going to be their story, uh, uh, like for instance in this book, the story of this guy in WA who. Uh, got his business shut down by the health department. He was the first guy to come up with electronic cigarettes in Australia, blah, 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 right? So when I first wrote that chapter, it was just him telling, and his story's fascinating and kind of hasn't been told before and all this stuff like that. But then, and I kind of, and I, but then when the editor was reading it, they're going, you just have to occasionally just put yourself in it. And because even for like one chapter, it just seems odd reading a book where I'm not, present in it and uh so i've got to think up little ways to do that that aren't sort of me uh so usually little stories or whatever where once you hear the story kind of justifies the diversion so in that case i started i talked about you know the time i went to court for uh because i tried to get shane warned to start smoking for a tv show or whatever like that so i tell i tell a little story that puts me back in the mind of the reader and especially with COVID uh, because it I, I mean so much of the book thank God uh, the research happened before COVID hit so I had a lot in the can so I could be out there in the big wide world with the wind blowing on me and walking here and there and very tactile which is like what my audience wants of me like no one no one really wants me um, pontificating like doing an op-ed from my laptop let me tell you what I think or whatever. But then I'm like locked in my flat. So I kind of, the way I had to make myself present in the book was to kind of talk a bit about the process mm. as well. Because otherwise, what is there? So, but but yeah, like maybe the process did get out of hand. Are you talking about the thing where I start going crazy in my flat in COVID and start chewing too much nicotine chewing gum and stuff? 
Yes, there's, a, there's it was a, certainly a feature of it, and I did um, I did appreciate the way in which you uh, you threw yourself into the story and uh, did your best to get addicted. Although it it seems as though you you failed in the end. Yes, yes. I I mean, I'd, in an ideal world, because I'm a sociopath and uh, dedicated to being a storyteller, <laughs> it would have been not it would have been nice to have got addicted to something. But I could tell pretty early on it wasn't really going to happen. Like no matter how much I tried, so. I didn't rely too much on it because I, I just thought it would come across as a bit of a, a emotionally untrue shtick if I was like, if I did too much of like, oh my God, I'm worried, I'm becoming addicted to vaping or whatever like that. I just thought the audience would go, John, you, you, we can tell you don't think you're becoming addicted to vaping. Plus, we can tell you'd want to become addicted to vaping. <laughs> so stop complaining. So you wouldn't be complaining if you became addicted to vaping because you'd think it was good for the book. So... Uh, yeah, there's a bit of that in there. I, I could be quite sincere about um, alcohol, though. So that that's in the book, where, where yeah, in, especially in lockdown. In fact, only in lockdown, really. Like, just you, you start drinking too much. So that I, I could talk about that and make that a bit of fun because that was that was true. It may have been that you just picked the wrong drug. Uh, I'm thinking of that uh, extraordinary series that uh, Luke Williams writes for the Saturday paper where he uh, sets about researching ice, decides that he will try ice and gets massively addicted and has, you know, those, those sort of uh, horrendous experiences. At one stage, he wakes up in the morning and he's convinced that someone has been painting grunge on his teeth uh, and it's only later that he realises, in fact, his teeth are just rotting because he hasn't brushed his teeth in months uh, it is it's, it's the most harrowing kind of kind of descent and you know he claws his claws his way out of it after you know losing money and friendships and uh, and all, all kinds of stuff um, so yes it's uh, it's all about the drug you pick I guess um, but well, uh, I, I really screwed up by not taking ice yeah exactly exactly uh, better just to read Luke Williams I think um, but uh, I want to ask you 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 punch up in this uh, this book on uh, on Philip Morris um, in the uh, in the Shane Warne episode you were sort of punching up in the sense that he was uh, uh, a, a well-off sports person with a Nicorette contact, uh, contract. Um, putting the fatwa on Rove McManus, that's kind of punching up as well. Uh, do you always try and do that or do you, do you feel you sometimes slip up? You know, I'm thinking about the, um, the voodoo curse you put on your ex-girlfriend in Race Around the World. Oh, uh, yeah. that, that didn't seem to quite fit the mould. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that was one of the first things I did. Well, well, I can I, I can happily say we're still friends, so that's good. Yes. Um, with the ex girlfriend after all these decades, so that get, that gives me a bit of a get out of jail card of looking like a jerk. I guess I didn't really. Yes, yeah, so, sometimes those things are pretty complicated, but definitely my motivation. And again, I guess I, I can't tell what bit is ethical versus creative, but. I often find if you go by your creative instincts, they can help sort out the other stuff and get... So even if I get it wrong, like, for instance, the joke in that is me being such a lunatic that... Uh, so to give a background, like on the show Race Around the World, where generally there were like these little uh, stories, these little documentaries, and you go and visit cultures of the world and, and you have to, we'd have to send back these little like five minute documentaries once a fortnight or whatever and they'll sort of that you know national geographic feel or something like that old school <laughs> a little bit or whatever but anyway so like i guess the kind of overarching joke when i did them is i just 
always make them about me in this sort of, you know, slightly inappropriate way. So I go to West Africa to look at voodooism and I'm visiting voodoo doctors and I'm making it all about I've broken up with this girl and she broke my heart. I'd like, here's a photo of her. Here's a love letter from her, an old love letter. Can you put a curse on her? And so it's just like the whole thing just seems like all out of whack a bit or whatever. Mm. But I would say even even if I failed, I reckon the joke was I was trying to be the stooge, if you know what I mean. I was trying to be my own foil in that it was meant to make me look like like a heartbroken kind of, what, what do you call it, where you have no power anymore and you're just flailing, kind of like flailing and... Uh, Rather than it being sort of like that direct line of like, yeah, I want to get a goddamn voodoo curse on her or whatever. But then again, you're kind of like playing games with the audience. And I guess when audiences are just going to take things different ways or see things differently. But then I've also said I've more screwed up in other ways where I've tried to play with the notion of punching up and punching down because I make myself the foil and kind of go against. And, and then that's when I, I, I mean, I'm going to have to go into therapy for certain stuff I've done. I've like, I've, it's, really, it's really suppressed. But yeah, no, I've definitely, I've definitely sort of, yeah, you, you, you definitely, ironically, when I, I've done things where I've really tried to make myself the foil and I kind of have for the sake of the audience, but then you sort of, yeah, you can be a jerk to people along the way that you didn't really mean to. And it's just, yeah, so that's like uh yeah, that's no good or whatever. But that's sort of, that's therapy and stuff. But uh, but it, but in this book, I was really happy when I realised I, uh, from a writing point of view, when I realised, um, oh, Philip Morris is a cigarette company. And so I can do all this dark humour and, like, especially in the new world where, like, everyone's, like, just so thingy about what you make jokes about or especially, like, bad taste humour or transgressive humour. And then when I was writing this, I was going, oh my God, I get to make all these black comedy jokes about death and about cancer and all this stuff that's sort of inappropriate. But because it's like targeting the cigarette company, like there's no one who's going to be like dying of cancer going, oh my God, I cannot, from a cigarette company going, I cannot believe John Safran made fun of cancer. Doesn't he know what it... Because the joke is all... Is obviously not for the people... It's not It's not punching down for the people in the iron lungs at the, at the Royal Children's mm. Hospital or whatever. It's always at Philip Morris. So I, I realised just I had this... I was like, oh my God, this is... I get to be transgressive in 2021 where in this way where like we're all not allowed to be transgressive anymore because everyone's like so sensitive. And... But I'm just going to, it's going to be okay because it's, it's all the jokes I'm making fun of Philip Morris. And so it was like the, the perfect foil. I was like, I was, um, yeah, so it was like, oh, that's really good. And, and also, God damn it, it was in the service of good in its own limited kind of way. So you can't even have a go. It's like, it was like moral bad taste jokes, just in case anyone's going to come out and attack me and go, um, oh, you just made bad taste jokes for your own interests. That might be true, but it also served a bit of a good. But even, but, but believe it or not, even in the case of Philip Morris, there's something about my character and the way I present myself in the book and my style. I think a lot of it's got to do with, because I'm a bit sarcastic in my writing. <laughs> you might have noticed that, that when you're sarcastic, there's what, one of the cool things is that it really puts a lot of pressure on you to make sure your jokes are pretty solid because 
it only works if your jokes are sarcastic. Like, as soon as you're sarcastic but not funny, then it's like, uh, no, it's just such an ugly... You're like, you might as well not be sarcastic. You might as well just do, like, easy listening or something. So, um, but there's something about being sarcastic when no one's in the mood for you whining and also no one's in the mood for you being mean in a way. So even even in this book, like, I had to be careful about how I wrote about... Uh, you know, like meeting people from Philip Morris or whatever, because like it just didn't work creatively. Like it, it, even though it was goddamn Philip Morris, it, it's like it's like you'd make some little snappy little thing about you know the CEO or something like that, and it still come across like, hey John, why are you why are you punching down at the at the CEO of Philip Morris with that joke? So, but that's okay. I mean, I, I really like parameters, and that's definitely a parameter I'm co- constantly aware of. Is that um, because my work relies on being sarcastic, there's people are not going to put up with my BS in other ways. You uh, you make the point in this book that uh, people who worked for cigarette companies a generation ago uh, might have you know not really understood the science around uh, around around smoking. These days, that's no excuse, and so you you implicitly argue that there are the people people who work for big big tobacco now are badder than their uh, their their, their what, predecessors. What, 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 what? Okay, go on. No, go on. Go uh, on. And, and I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm writing notes here. Well, well I, I suppose I was, was thinking that uh, that sort of ties through to uh, your exploration of extremism in your previous book. Uh, and the big question I had that that linked those is: Do you believe in free will? Ah, uh, yes. Well, first of all, you do. Uh, in free will? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. Well. Hang on, maybe I don't. Okay. I just want to put a footnote on something you said, or whatever, okay. which is that there was other people who said that about the one generation ago. They were, uh, they were like, like now there's no excuse for working for a cigarette company, whilst a generation ago maybe there was because the science wasn't in. But that was in the context of also is that because Philip Morris says, I'll just say this really quickly or whatever, because it's like, what about, um, so Philip Morris's new gambit is that they're introducing something they claim isn't a cigarette, even though it kind of looks like a cigarette. So therefore, the people who work there now can say, and I believe that they believe it, they can say, we're not working for a cigarette company, we're working for a company that's trying to get people off cigarettes, because they, Philip Morris, have convinced their staff that this new product, which is sort of a hybrid of a cigarette and a vape, They've convinced them, a lot of them, that it's not a cigarette. So therefore, you have these new generation of Philip Morris staff and they say, no, no, we're the moral ones because we're on this campaign to get people off cigarettes onto this new thing called a heat stick. And so it's the older generation that were, uh, were kind of dicey and, 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 and controversial because they knew they were killing people whilst we're, we, we're trying to get people off cigarettes. So that part of the book was all about that whole tangle of the two generations and and them sort of fighting with each other. But anyway, so what's this about free will? Well, I'll, I'll take back my suggestion that uh, we should regard uh, Philip Morris employees as being on the uh, same page as, as extremists uh, that, uh, that you profile in your previous book. Uh, but, you know, here's, here's the basic argument you know, put down by yeah. someone like Sam Harris in his book Free Will. Um, our brains are simply meat computers. 
um, they take uh, the, the chemicals that they're given and the stimulus that they're, they're, they're given and that causes our behaviour. Um, the way in which we act is a function of our genetics, which we can't control, uh, and our environment, which, uh, which comes at us. Uh, and so if you had the same... Uh, genetic, uh, the same genes and the same environment as another human being, uh, you would act in the same way in which they did. Um, does that, and, and you know, Sam Harris as an atheist argues that there isn't a, uh, a, uh, another point at which people are able to break out, break out of that, uh, that biological reality. Um, do you buy that? Uh, and if so, how does that change your sympathy for uh, the extremists that you've profiled? So the best I can do, because obviously not being a neuroscientist or philosopher or whatever, is to say I imagine that it's a mixture of things. So, and and from that, so, you know, a mixture of nature and nurture. So, and from that, I'd say that it's probably helpful, whether it's true or not, it's probably helpful to believe you have free will because that will make you make better decisions. If oh, no, that's I mean, undoubtedly like, true. Like, I don't, this yeah, is, so, so, I, I don't, so, I don't yeah. tell my kids that they're passively moving through the world. I don't engage in free will parenting, but intellectually I find it impossible to fault the argument. Oh, no, no, but, but how can... What, what about how it's a mixture of things is what I'm getting at. Like, surely it's a mixture of things and surely you can have a huge impact on your own life based on your freely chosen actions. Or yeah, but John, a mixture of what a... things? So, so you've got the outside environments that are, that, are, that are external to your control and you've got yeah. the way in which your brain works, which is a, simply, a, simply a function of biology. But yeah, maybe in, maybe in a case of like extreme people who make extreme actions, maybe, maybe there's that where it's like, well, he, he just had something in him that he was always going to kill someone. Or she just had something in her that she was always going to not kill, you know, nurture someone or whatever like that. So maybe on like the extremes, it's surely in, like in the middle, there's lots of us in most of our actions, uh, a bit of a mixture of nature and nurture and, and knowing and, and free will. And so knowing we have this free will, it's probably like super helpful um, for people to know they have this free will so they can, you know, um, be happier. <laughs> and kind of like and see hope and take actions that might drag them out of a you know bring them more hope and or, or whatever so um yeah because because i, I guess the other side of that and it, uh, is like just to assume that everyone's just doing things because they're forced to or they have to that becomes its own sort of sense of i don't know defeatism and kind of condescension towards people because it's like well you can't do anything else can you or whatever so, yeah, but I imagine, like, as with all these things, it's, like, uh, a mixture of things. I, I definitely uh, believe, I, like, I, I live my life, like, like it's locked into my head that it's a mixture of things and, and I can't unlock it. Because uh, what really screwed me up is my parents sent me to Sunday school when I was really young, a Jewish Sunday school and synagogue. So now I've got a notion in my head that, that I can't get out of my head that everything that happens... So if something bad happens to me, like even if I drop a, uh, a mug in my kitchen, it smashes all over the floor, I can't, I think it's like a message. I, I think it's like a sign of bad things that are to come. Like I'm like going, oh my God, that means something. I, I put meaning to everything. And the opposite also, I think when, when, when there's, a, there's good luck 
I think like, oh, that's like, good luck is more about to come or whatever like that. And I sort of like, so it's, yeah, that's really, and I know it's not logical at all. And I know it's not true. And I know I'm a mental case, but there's, it's too late. It's like, it's not my fault. My parents were Mr. and Mrs. Saffron. They weren't Mr. Richard Dawkins and Mrs. Sam Harris. So that's what happened. So what, what do you see as your main drivers creatively? Um, I, well, when I grew up, I, I, when I grew up, I was like obsessed with like reading and watching films and like storytelling. And I was like, that was like my thing where, uh, where I'd just be fascinated by how people told stories and how people wrote stories and which, which is why I kind of fell into, uh, race around the world because like before that, I hadn't really thought about doing documentaries or appearing as a, on TV or it, like, it was just more like, oh man, here's a way to tell a story or whatever. And I guess before that, because I, I, I started studying journalism at RMIT, but I was also doing a night course in copywriting and then I left journalism to be a copywriter and then I was writing stories as in the form of ads and it was like, it was, I don't know how long it was, was it 18 months for the two years? I can't remember how long it was, but it was like two years of every day I'd have to go to work and come up with little stories of those beginnings, middles and ends for like for ads and stuff like that. So just kind of that, because it's obviously in me, there's something about how, how I kind of want to tell stories uh, or whatever. And even in primary school, I was like always fidgeting around trying to figure out a, a way, like trying to draw a comic strip and I couldn't draw trying to put skits together and always like trying to do something to tell stories. And, and then, yeah. And then when I got a bit older and started understanding, when I say a bit older, like, you know, like high school and early uni and started realizing the role of these sort of outsider artists for one of a better word, like, uh, you know, everyone from like, like, like that cartoonist, Robert Crumb, not that I particularly, I'm not saying I love these people or whatever, but just sort of like, there was this thing in the world that was sort of like, outsider artists who kind of or even like Hunter S. Thompson or whatever like that like he's probably the more famous one or whatever like mm. people who go out and tell stories and you know they put themselves on the line a bit and it's this combination of art and danger and and it's all bit and once I started realizing that there was that kind of like role in the world I was like oh, okay I guess I really liked it for one thing like I really liked I really liked that sort of outsider artist kind of thing you know like in filmmaking too or whatever like and and even sometimes it's like even mainstream i really like artists who just are willing to like just be ridiculous or or not even be ridiculous but just sort of like um put themselves on the line and and be a bit sort of um take a take a risk in looking like a fool and even, even sometimes like in a mainstream way or whatever like you know like and again, I don't particularly like, these aren't like my favourite things or whatever, but I remember like, you'd watch some like Baz Luhrmann film and he's just gone, wow, he's bet the farm on this, hasn't he? Like, this is like, like, he must know that if this doesn't work, he looks like the biggest idiot in front of so many people. But I kind of respected that, if you know what I mean. And so he's like a, a much more mainstream version of what I'm talking about. But yeah, I just, I just kind of grew up and started liking all these storytellers who were a bit kind of, yeah, a bit on the, a bit insider outsiders, if you know what I mean. And then, and then when I fell into Race Around the World, I was, I was like, oh my God, I've become this. I've become 
that thing I kind of like. So, so now, now I sort of just try to keep that all up, if you know what I mean. I still can't believe my luck. Like, what? how insane is this? Like, I got to spend whatever it was, a year, 18 months, kind of wandering around, uh, trying to dig into the secrets of Philip Morris, you know, um, going crazy, um, getting on narcotics, you know, on, on vaping and nicotine and hanging out with incredible people and hearing crazy stories from people about how, you know, they'll pay it off by the Russian government. And it's just like, I just cannot believe my luck. And so I just sort of like, I, I think the best way for me to show my gratefulness for that good fortune is to try to like uh, tell us tr uh, a cool story for people and like, you know, ho hopefully make people a bit happy through entertaining them and also stimulating them because they're like, learning things they otherwise wouldn't have learned. I think particularly in the case of this book, this is like one thing really fortunate with this book, because it's driving me crazy in the book that no one seems to care about this new Philip Morris gambit. Like there's no newspaper articles about mm. it. And and it's like, I'm finding it like quite curious at the start and then it's kind of a bit frustrating. And then like in the real world, it was freaking me out a bit because I was going, if no one cares about this, I'm writing a book about the thing. It's quite clear. No one, people don't seem that interested but then again another obstacle where it becomes oh that's brilliant I'll write about that I'll, about, I'll, I'll write about how I'm trapped in this topic that I'm fascinated with and you know but people don't seem to be you know uh, it's hard to rally people up about it so then and then and then by the end of it I was like going oh this is awesome it's like I'm going to be and I'm not going to let people forget this if, this if in five years time there's court cases around the heat stick and the ice class, or in 20 years' time, I'm going to freaking remind everyone, I was the lunatic who was running... Because I'm like the lunatic in the science fiction film, like going, the monsters are coming, the aliens are coming, and no one's believing it. And then, then the lunatic was right. So I'm definitely the lunatic who's, like, telling this story about this new thing Philip Morris are doing, that everyone's... I, I'm like, the aliens are coming, and no one's paying any attention, but I'm, like, so sure like within the next 10 to 20 years or whatever, 5, 10, 20, like the aliens will come, like in the form of the chickens coming home to roost with this new Philip Morris thing. And then I'm going to remind everyone that I wasn't mad and I was the, I was the one who tried to warn everyone and tell everyone. And then, um, and then I'll, I'll demand credit. And then I'll get bitter and twisted when I don't get it. <laughs> That's just Act 3. That's, you see, this book's only Act 1 and 2. Act three is like, it goes into the real world. So, uh, I mean, I have been thinking about uh, your, your next project. And, and in some sense, you know, if we as a society could, could now point John Safran at the problem that we are having difficulty confronting. Uh, oh, yeah, cool. Let me, so, um, so, so let me run by you a few of the things that I think are sort of... Uh, oh, don't, current, don't tell me, the Liberal current Party. Current taboos. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the rise of online pornography, I think, is uh, is is massive and under under researched. Um, uh, markets in kidneys is uh, is 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 fascinating, and the sort of purchase of, uh, of 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 body parts. You know, I'm thinking of classic. It's one of those classic economics things where economists are like, "What do what do people do this?" And everyone else is like, "Why would you do that?" Uh, and uh, and then the, that is a uh, good idea. I, I think that's a really good idea, uh, whether it's kidneys or whatever. Of the yeah, just. Uh, looking at economics and then and then kind of contrasting it or using it as the story the, this sort of like the most high stakes sort of uh, you know 
thing. Yeah, because mm. like, like selling kidneys. Yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, I can learn. And psychedelics learn was the other thing. The other thing I was uh, was was wondering whether you're uh, you're getting curious about. So uh, are, you, are they in, on your radar, or uh, what else They're is not, uh, I, I are you like, pointing I, I the uh, the saffron radar out at the moment? Uh, I, I do have I do have one thing which I think I'm because I've got I've got a, another book for Penguin, the good people of Penguin Random House. They signed me up for two books. Well, actually, this this will be my fourth, but in the latest thing. So, therefore, that that was really handy. Where I was like, because when COVID happened, it was like, oh, what's you know, everyone's like freaking out a bit, especially in the arts, rightfully so. I was like, oh my god, thank god, at least I've got this other book to do. You know, mm. but that, I've got I've got one more gig lined up. So yeah, I do have an idea. I do have an idea for that, which I'm going to uh, keep tucked into my pocket. But I can tell you about some other. I, the, uh, the reason I like your economics one is because, yeah, it'd be cool to learn about economics because I don't I, I like science. I didn't pay attention to that, but it's obviously it's the most in, a real valuable thing. But this, this Philip Morris book actually started off as a, as a totally different topic. And when I signed with Penguin and then I just kind of floated off into this or whatever. Well, I, I actually signed up for a book called Boring Looking People, and it was about accountants and the world of accounting and like the whole tension was going to be, it's like, this is the most boring topic that no one's interested in. But actually, uh, like the four huge accounting firms are just have so much, wield so much power and, uh, you know, in policy making, you know, like obviously know a thousand times about more about this than me, but, you know, about pot, they, you know, they're consultants uh, for political parties and for politicians and they... They draw up tax policy, which means, you know, these big companies don't have to pay tax. Yet we just don't think of them. And it's like, like if you're a regular person, and there was actually research done about this where it was talking about Australians who are pissed off that Google doesn't pay enough tax or nearly any tax. And the research showed that people blamed, well, they blamed politicians, they blamed uh, the you know, regulators, and they blamed the banks. And they blamed the board of directors of Google and stuff like like they had all these people they blamed, and no one sort of like, even though it was on the list like no one blamed the accountants like we just don't process things that right, right. these huge accounting firms wield so much power and do arguably so much stuff that we're complaining about. I mean it's proven by the fact that people all hate the banks, but who hates the four big accounting firms or whatever like that? So it was going to be about that, and I was also going to go as part of that. I was going to get a bit messy and try to get in with like the accountants for like bikey gangs and stuff like that and accountants that have gone bad and accountants that have been in jail for embezzling money. So I was going to be that. And so I could do that again, but I guess someone could steal the idea now. But anyway, that was well, originally going to be... Yeah, there was, was Ian Gowan, Stuart, Stuart Kell's book, The Big Four, a couple of years back. But uh, that's, uh, oh, yeah. I'm sure it's a, a, a wonkier take than uh, and a less Saffron-esque take than you would have uh, delivered. <laughs> Ah, yeah, for sure. The what was the other? Oh, yeah, and I was also going to be talking about the these, the accountants in that the U.S. Army use because apparently they followed the money trail of the, the these what do you call it? forensic accountants and they followed mm. the money trail of like the Taliban, like where they're getting the money from, where they and through that they realize where they, oh they're making their money from this opium field or from this you know opium factory here. And so the accountants would actually have a say on where, where the planes, the American planes would bomb and kill people. So talk about high stakes, consequential accounting. 
So yeah, so all that was going to be sort of like playing off against the fact that accountants are boring looking people and whatever like that. But anyway, I for whatever reason, I floated off from that and ended up um, vape, vaping. <laughs> Getting smashed on gin and vaping on a hill in New Zealand, which kind of does seem a bit more fun, to be honest. For a young person listening to this podcast, uh, thinking that they would love to have the kind of career you have, uh, what bits of advice do you have? Uh, you know, one one thing that seems to come out of your uh, career is the importance of having a bit of bravery. Uh, you know, the moment in which you uh, uh, reach out to kiss the mothers of your ex-girlfriends, uh, the moment oh, which you have... Oh, my God, I thought we were going to talk about that. We I have nails. You got, well, therapy. Nails yeah, put no, through your, hand, your hands and feet, fault. right? I mean, you've you've I, done some pretty some pretty brave yeah, no, things. Is it is know, um, bailing up Ray, do Ray Martin as uh, outside his outside his house? You know that was uh, that was pretty bold too. Uh, is it is it about sort of taking those risks or or what? Is, what other bits of advice would you give to uh, uh, to a budding John Saffron? Well, first of all, I'd sort of like consumed when i say consume i mean like i'd watch films i'd watch documentaries i'd watch listen to music i'd read books i'd do i'd sort of or whatever your thing is maybe you want to go to art galleries or whatever like that but it's sort of start if that's if you want to do something like where you want to be a storyteller of some sort whether that's like a journalist or a fiction writer or whatever the hell i do which is some in between i don't know what it is but anyway yeah so i think you kind of like can't discount that like if you start absorbing all that stuff, you start noticing, you start seeing how other people are doing things and you start absorbing the blueprints and you start thinking of different ways. And it's really helpful. Like in the same way as to like to build a car, you have to study engineering or all this stuff like that. And so it can't all just be like, oh, I want to build a car. <laughs> it's like, it's like uh, you can get too weighed down in one way. Like you can think, oh, oh man, if I learn the rules... Like it's going to stifle my genius or something like that. But really, it's not like that at all because you can just like throw things out or whatever. Like you, you don't have to sign a contract of like you have to follow these rules or whatever. But you're you just sort of getting into the minds of of how storytellers work and, and the little techniques they use is so helpful. Like I'm always like kind of surprised that uh, unfortunately this year the Writers' Festival was cancelled, Melbourne Writers' Festival, and I imagine others will too, but... Often when I have been in Writers' Festival in the past, I always sort of weird a bit how when you write about something that's like grounded in the real world, like non-fiction, like politics or something like that, or in this case, puff piece, like people think somehow, they disconnect that from the whole process of being a writer and being a storyteller. And, and so it's, it's when really like, before I write a book, one of the first things I do is I, I read a lot of pulpy old American crime and detective novels because I just love how they're really snappy and they cascade through and and it's sort of like it's it's it's, it's like kind of like me doing warm-up exercises trying to fit, get my, get my brain all supp, supple and ready to kind of write my own book or whatever and I just um, yeah and, and like when I was younger like like lots of men I'm sure women too like when you're young and you start writing like you all want to write fear and Loathing in Las uh, Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. So I used to like read that, and, and, or read in, in 
in cold blood by Truman Capote or something like, like it's, you just read other I just read other books to kind of prep myself for writing my own book so yeah I, I reckon don't discount sort of absorbing yourself in the culture and and sort of like starting to yeah start noticing the blueprints in things and then think about how you can apply that to your own thing because that can really help get um Get, uh, get you going and sort of not feel feel like you're just floating off un- unmoored. Did that make sense? Was that inspired? Absolutely. Uninspired. Oh, cool. And in terms of how your creative career goes, have you thought about exploring the um, uh, di- different different works on the boundaries? Um, I'm thinking of the way in which Malcolm Gladwell is uh, producing these new audio books now, which aren't just oh, yeah. one person reading the whole book, but where he's done an interview, suddenly you will hear the person who's who was interviewed. You'll hear their actual voice from the tapes. Um, oh, so yeah. he's done talking to strangers and bomber mafia. Uh, which which are the first audio books I've come across, which are better than reading the book in uh, in print copy. Um, are you are you exploring? I mean, that seems oh, an ideal oh, outlet for you. Uh, sure. are, are there other are there other sort of um, creative products you're thinking about uh, producing that are? Oh yeah, definitely. I'm always I've always got a few fingers in pies that sometimes they end up being something, sometimes they don't. You know, I, I do all sorts of. Uh, odd bod work like this week I'm working in a writer's room on Zoom like unfortunately because it's much more fun being in the writer's room because there's that plate of uh, you know chocolates in the middle and you get to sort of um, you know you get to giggle with other people which is much more fun than being isolated at home but like yeah I'm just working on a on, in a writer's room on someone else's uh, crime sh- crime show, if you know what I mean. So yeah, I'm I'm always doing like lots of little things, you know, because you know I'm like everyone else. I've got to have a job, <laughs> and and uh, I'd happily do that. What you just described there, or I'd happily do TV or whatever. It's like, I, but I mean, there's a bit of push and pull where I kind of go where the work is, mm. and so, and I really, um, I really take it seriously once I get an opportunity because I just feel I still feel like I'm so lucky, like. How many people would love to be have a book deal from Penguin? It's like I just really, I, I'm not like, I, I can tell Penguin kind of like. I mean, they've, they've never directly said it, but I can tell like because people often, uh, if if they've got some other career, they'll they'll see the book as some like little side project or like oh yeah I want to do it or whatever. But I'm really you know, but it's not the real thing or whatever. But man, in all my books, including this one, it's like the real thing for me. It's like this is my big project for the next 18 months or whatever. And I'll just put in as much because it puts an awesome opportunity. and I love it. And I also love, I even like love the idea of how I've got this book on the shelf at the end. Like how insane is that? Like, it's just like, I've now got these three spines on my bookshelf filled with hundreds of thousands of words or whatever. And I'm so like grateful for that or whatever. So yeah. So basically part of the reason I'm, I'm writing books now is because Penguin has given me a job writing books, <laughs> and you, you know, so which I'm grateful for or whatever. So that, that that's part of the reason I do this. Like I, I can imagine whatever, like in next year or something like that. Like it's totally feasible that like a, a streamer or a network would say, "Oh, can you do a doco about this or that?" And I'd go, "Yeah, sure, or whatever." And I'd be excited about that too. So yeah, I'm definitely open to other things. Like even in because. The whole thing about how I started off in documentaries, just I think I said that before, it's like I never thought about it. I just sort of 
fell into it. <laughs> and then it was like I just took the bull by the horns. I did not think about... I probably hadn't even seen that many documentaries before I fell into documentary documentary making. Like, you know, I was like everyone else. And So like, that sort of surprises me. I mean, you're, you're incredibly well-known. You're incredibly successful. Um, it's sort of interesting that you, you think of yourself more as a creative spirit, uh, but with other people doing the project management rather than somebody who'll set up your own production house to, uh, to, to, to create in a medium that, uh, that, that people haven't envisaged before. Uh, is it that you don't, you don't want to do that kind of management stuff or, or is it actually trickier than, uh, than, than a, a knife like me might imagine? Yeah, I don't I do this. I, sometimes there is a bit of it. There's, there's, yeah, I, pro I probably could if I was smarter. Or if, I reckon if the circumstances were just had worked out that way, I would have done it. Like I wouldn't have anything against it or whatever. Like, who knows? Like maybe when I was younger, like because I remember when I was younger, like with the little production company I was working with, I was going, oh, we should do, you know, we should kind of work on different projects that aren't all yours, or like, or you know, like do some ads or something like that, and. And I was like nothing against it or whatever. It just kind of didn't end up that way. I, I think mm. that there is something. There are some things where it's more like it just didn't end up that way, rather than I really thought about it too hard. But I, I do find that there's there's so much as, as as much as people who are annoyed by my squeaky voice and my sarcasm will hate to hear this. Is there's much more of a market for me on a project if I'm present in the project, and and kind of less of a market if it's like. Like I'm the director or something like that. Like yes, people are yes. just going to be good. Yeah. So yeah. So 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 that 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 also kind of informs my decisions. Yeah. Like like for instance, even even the books I write, like I don't have total free reign. Like it is. It's not like they beat me with a stick at Penguin or whatever. But like if I came to Penguin with my next book and said it's fiction, for instance, or worst of all, it's poetry, then they beat me with a stick. Like. You know, and, and or like Penguin particularly want a book where I'm not present in it a lot and all this stuff like that. So, and I know that, so I kind of write that. So, so yeah, I, I do sort of, yeah, there's a lot of push and pull me. I, I reckon I come across way more narcissistic in my books, but not in a bad way, but kind of in a funny way than I necessarily, I, I would happily like do a biography about someone else or something, but I don't know. It just doesn't end up being as fun and good to read or whatever i yep. think i think yep. i think i think the thing i've i've struck upon where i find it really hard not to do is me creating nervous energy by being in the real world and as so as soon as you take that out of it there'd be a bit of well why are you doing that john and i'd be going well why am i doing this because it's not like that's a bad thing like like the fact that even like whatever like my, my books or whatever like they come across like as real and as sort of you know John's there and he's in a bit of danger and oh my god this is cringy and blah 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 so, like that's not nothing that's like most people can't pull that off you know what I mean like most people would find it hard to write that so if I can write that why would I kind of look a gift horse in the mouth and say oh you know this thing that people like me for I'm not going to do that for, for, for some for some unknown reason just to be a, a masochist but yeah I in some dream world, I would love to have been a fiction writer because then I don't have to have, you know, I can just do it all from my flat and become crazy. But unfortunately, people like me and I get hired because I kind of get lost in the real world and 
So I guess I have to leave my flat again. Well, I like that answer, and uh, not least because it shows an intuitive understanding of the economist's notion of comparative advantage. Um, but let me uh, <laughs> throw to you a handful of questions I ask all my guests. Uh, when are you most happy? Uh, yeah, working and being stimulated, I guess. Like, yes. Is Scrabble playing your happy place? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I love it. And I really resent COVID for that because, I mean, I can, you can st I can still do it on the app. I, I play it uh, in, with a friend in Israel on the app, like, once a day or whatever, like, make one move a day or whatever. But, you know, it's... You know, that's fine because they're in another country and I couldn't play with it anyway, but it's, like, it's no good. Like, my general Scrabble buddy... Like, we don't play online because it's just too depressing. So, come on, um, let's all pray COVID goes away so I can play Scrabble. <laughs> What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Jesus. Oh, my God. No, that's why I, I need that. If you said that to my friends, if you said that to people who, like, know me well or whatever, like my small group of friends, I said, what do you do to remain mentally healthy? they would crack up laughing. They'd be going, no, no, no. That's, no. The question has to be, what should you be doing to ease your way into being mentally healthy? Uh, I guess, what, what I, 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 you know what I do on a practical level that should, really is helpful is that I really exercise a lot. Like, not when I'm working. Like, I put on all this weight and I'm really unhealthy when, I, when I'm working, like when I wrote, wrote the book. But since handing in the manuscript... A couple of months ago and because I knew there was like the the book tour coming up and and you know people take you know the age will take photos of you and stuff I'm like it's man it's just gonna be humiliating it's like people are gonna be man he's really chubbed up since right he put the voodoo curse on the girlfriend and he raced around the world so I just go on a mad health kick and a real and a healthy health kick it's not like a like I'm starving myself or anything like that I just exercise every day and sometimes with the trainer then I just eat really healthy. And again, not, I mean, I cut down, but I don't, I'm not like on some weird, strange diet or anything like that. It really is quite simple. It's like I exercise and I eat less, but of healthier food. And then like, I, I didn't weigh myself at the start and I haven't weighed myself yet because I find that too, uh, I felt like I was doing the right thing anyway, so I didn't need that motivation. And it just it gets demotivating once you start you start getting bitter and twisted, going, uh, I ate healthy, yet I only lost 100 grams. Or what is this bullshit? I put on 100 grams. Like, it starts doing with your head. So I, I actually don't know how much I lost, but I've, like, gone down inches around the waist. Like, And I, I do this before every project, so it's, like, it's pretty insane or whatever. But, yeah, but then, and then once I get healthy... There's like, there's no way around it. It's like, it's so much, you feel so much better being physically healthy. And there's nothing, it's not one of these, there's pros and cons. There's no con. There's no con. Because I'm always yo-yoing. And when, and when I'm, uh, yeah, like, I see what, what happens is, then I'm really healthy for a while. And then what happens is, you, there's the book tour. And then I'm interstate. And I'm in a hotel. And there's the Pringles above the minibar. And I open the, the Pringles and then the whole cycle starts again of me. <laughs> and, and so, uh, but yeah, so, so uh, that, I reckon that's how I keep uh, mentally healthy because it's like, I would def I'm definitely like, I, I'm definitely like less, less happy at the start of that journey than I am at the end of that journey. Well, you may have answered this with the Pringles, but do you have any guilty pleasures? 
I watch, like, I fall down YouTube rabbit holes, which maybe people would go, well, oh, John, I thought you are much more, I thought you'd be hanging out at the art gallery or whatever. But I, I like, I, I love storytelling, and so sometimes I like watching these sort of, like, little reality shows and how they kind of tell stories or whatever. So I, 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 and I like things, like, with antiques, and, like, like, I'm watching this one at the moment called Porn Stars, P-A-W-N, like, it's just like this, you know, whatever. People would think it's like some pretty middle-brow to low-brow reality show set in a pawn shop where, you know, everything's scripted. But you still get to see old guns and old swords and whatever. And 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 it, I find it interesting how they try to... Because they're clearly, like, faking storylines and faking conflict and using real people. Like, obviously, these people aren't professional actors, the people who work at the porn store or whatever. So I, I find that kind of interesting in itself. So, yeah, like, I... Yeah, I, li I like falling down YouTube rabbit holes and watching kind of maybe unexpected things that people wouldn't expect I watch. Finally, John, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, uh, easily my parents and Father Bob. I think, yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely my parents. That is Father Bob Maguire Bob. rather than your yeah, father, yeah. whose name is Bob. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Father Bob Maguire. So, and especially my parents, but also Bob. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what happened with me. It just, maybe it just skips a generation. Maybe I'll have, I'll have kids and they'll be as ethical as my parents again. It just, these things happen. Maybe, maybe that's what my next book has to be about genetics and why sometimes... <laughs> Good quality skipping generation. Uh, your uh, your parents all came uh, came from from or both. Uh, sorry, your grandparents came from came from Europe. Um, do do you feel as though, in some sense, you're shaped by that experience of of the flight from the Holocaust two generations back? Totally. Yeah. Like I mean, uh, you just have a. Di I mean, again, when you're growing up, you don't you don't know what everyone else is growing up how or how they are so you just think everything's normal or whatever but um yeah i've been kind of like recently like ha having sort of not 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 fights but sort of like disagree even if we don't publicly say them with how how to see the world and i just realize i've been totally influenced by you know what like you know knowing how my grandparents had to flee Poland to escape the Nazis with my mum born on the run and all of their family were murdered and they were the only ones who made it and you know like, and I grew up largely with my grandmother and she was like even though I didn't really notice it at the time because but you know she was largely a bit she was like really affected by it obviously and so yeah totally that that kind of paints my my view especially especially now where um I think non-Jewish people, especially on the left, don't always appreciate that, um, like Aboriginal people, like like you, you've got middle-class Aboriginal people now, and you've got fairer-skinned Aboriginal people, but they have a right to be, and in fact, to be mad if they didn't. They have a right to be kind of like affected and influenced by the generations before them, because you know if they're if if they're a middle-class Aboriginal person or whatever, that's a fairly recent thing. And their stories, and you just realise how conditional your your life is. <laughs> you know, in some ways, like not. I mean, maybe you're paranoid or whatever. Maybe it's not not conditional, but you have a right to think 
your safety is conditional and so yeah yeah I, I find I find it really weird the the lack of the naivety I think sometimes it's naivety sometimes it's just being jerks or whatever and particularly in like modern day woke people or left wing but not like kind of like not understanding the Jewish experience or, or just thinking it's all a put on or it's a manipulation or get over it or you're a bunch of goddamn white people and you're all rich and everything. So what the hell? It's like, it kind of doesn't work like that. And it's not a put on. It's not fake. It's like, what, what, what do you want from me when I know the stories of my grandparents? And what do you want when I grow up with a, a grandmother who's like mentally ill because her family's murdered? And, and so it's like, um, yeah, of course it's going to influence me. Well, it's hard to think that uh, Gittle and Alex wouldn't be uh, proud of you and all you've done. Uh, John, thanks for uh, sharing your insights on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you very much. Okay, see ya. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion with John Safran, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Marcus Zusak, Astrid Jorgensen, Tim Minchin and Sheridan Harbridge. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.